Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure, and I've been meaning to have him on for quite some time, to have David Vine on Talk Nation Radio. David Vine is Associate Professor of Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. He is the author of a terrific book called Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia. came out in 2009, and his new book coming out shortly will be Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Overseas Harm America and the World coming out in August. His articles and other information can be found at davidvine.net. David, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much, David. It's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on here. It's This strikes me as one of the most important topics in that foreign military bases are one of the primary ways that most of the human population encounters the country that supposedly represents me, uh, and yet it's so little talked about, and you are researching and writing about it as much as anyone I'm I'm aware of. Uh, why don't we why don't we start with Diego Garcia because I'm afraid many people still don't know what it is. It's true and and this is how I became aware of the hundreds and hundreds of US military bases overseas. So when I got introduced to Diego Garcia, which I had some vague awareness of from the first Gulf War, but uh, in 2001, I got asked to do some research uh, as a graduate student for some lawyers who were representing a group of people who were exiled from their homeland uh, by the U.S. and British government as part of the creation of the base on Diego Garcia. It's a little-known island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, halfway between Africa and Indonesia, and there's a major U.S. Air Force and Na- Navy base that's played roles in in that Gulf War, um, in the 2003 war against uh, Iraq, in the 2001 and on war in Afghanistan, um, and basically every major U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. And the basis for that base is the expulsion of the native Chagosian people uh, who were dumped in, in exile in the western Indian Ocean islands of of Mauritius and the Seychelles and and left there with no resettlement assistance. And uh, this took place between 1968 and 1973. And since that time, the people have been struggling to get back to their homeland, only for both governments, the U.S. and British government, uh, to prevent them from returning. The British government controls the island, I should say, but it's uh, very much a U.S. military base. I mean, this is this is sort of a theme in U.S. history from the taking over of the North American continent, evicting people from where they lived. And I know there are other cases in more recent U.S. military history in the Pacific and uh, in somewhere in Greenland and so forth. But this is a, a striking story of the entire population of an island being evicted so that a military base could be there instead. Uh, how, what was done to these people and who did it? The idea for the base goes back to the late 1950s, and I should say you're, you're of course, exactly right that there's a long pattern of this uh, going back to the, the 19th century and the expropriation of land and destruction of Native American societies, and that's part of the story I tell in, in Island of Shame. Um, but the story of Diego Garcia goes back to the late 1950s when U.S. military was looking for small, isolated islands where they could 
build uh, future military bases uh, to basically control parts of the world where there weren't numbers of U.S. bases. And basically they approached the British government uh, beginning in 1960 and started engaging in secret negotiations, asking the British government for the right to build a base on Diego Garcia. And pretty quickly the British agreed, um, and, and the two governments decided that, that Britain would create a new colony in the era of decolonization. So what they did was they chopped off Diego Garcia and the rest of its Chagos Archipelago from Colonial Mauritius, which was a British colony at the time, and created uh, Britain's last created colony, um, which they call the British Indian Ocean Territory. And as part of the, the final agreement, which was signed in 1966, uh, the two governments uh, decided that, that the United States would make a secret $14 million payment to the British government for the basing rights and for the British government to take what was quoted in um, secret minute as those administrative measures necessary for resettling the inhabitants, that is the Chagosians who are now living in exile. And the administrative measures meant that beginning in 1968, any Chagosian who left their island homes uh, for regular vacation or any medical care that couldn't be taken care of in, in the archipelago, um, they were simply prevented from returning home. They were marooned in, in Mauritius. Uh, they, were, they were told, your islands have been sold and you can never go back there again, um, much, of course, to their shock and horror. As uh, The 1960s came to a close. The British government began restricting food and medical supplies to the islands and conditions began deteriorating, uh, leading some Chagosians to, to leave in the hopes of returning when, when conditions improved. And then in 1971, when the U.S. Navy began construction of the base on Diego Garcia, the highest-ranking official in the U.S. Navy at the time, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, he gave the final expulsion order, and it was in a three-word memo, literally three words, Memo said, absolutely must go. And with that, uh, British agents, uh, assisted by some U.S. Navy personnel, uh, rounded up the Chagosians uh, for deportation. And in the process, actually rounded up the Chagosians' pet dog. This is a part of the story I tell in uh, my recent Tom Dispatch piece. They rounded up the Chagosians' pet dogs and herded them into sealed cargo sheds where they gassed them and burned them uh, before the eyes of the, the Chagosians who were looking on, waiting to be deported. And as, as several have pointed out, this sent a powerful message to the Chagosians about what might happen if they tried to resist. Uh, following that, the Chagosians were, as I mentioned, deported to, to Mauritius and the Seychelles, 1,200 miles away, literally left on the dock. Um, and the expulsions continued in that manner through 1973. And by that point, every last Chagosian had been exiled, deported uh, from their homeland. And, and they want to return, many of them. And the struggle goes on to prevent their return, as I understand it. That's exactly right. Yeah, since, since their... Uh, since 1968, since the first Chagosians were told they couldn't go back to their homeland, and continually since then, 
Chagosians have demanded the right to live in their homeland, to return to their homeland, and to get proper compensation. As a result of their struggles, they, they did win small amounts of compensation in the late 1970s and in 1983. Uh, that compensation amounted to about $6,000 per person, a small house and plot of land for some of them. Um, but this came five and ten years after the last Chagosians were exiled. Uh, most had, had fallen into extreme poverty already. Um, so for the, on, on the whole, the small amounts of compensation helped some pay off debts and, and on the whole did little to raise the overall economic status of the, of the population. So since that time, they, they've also been trying to struggle for proper compensation. You know, you might think about what, what would it be worth to, to take, you know, your homeland? Um, what, what is that worth? What's the value of having your land stolen, your homes, all your possessions, uh, the land of your ancestors, the land where your ancestors are buried? Uh, $6,000 is uh, a pittance. And, and not all the Chagosians even received that compensation. Now, all the Chagosians in the Seychelles received nothing. Um, and some Chagosians and Mauritius received nothing. And and what are the prospects uh, if they should ever win the right to return and own their land again uh, to go back to an island that doesn't sink under the rising ocean and an island that isn't poisoned with fuels and chemicals and weaponry? It's a, g- a good question. The, 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 the latter, um, the environmental damage that the base has caused has been pretty extreme, uh, but only on one half of the island. Uh, the island looks like a, a V or a horseshoe, and the U.S. base is only on the western side of the island. And uh, as far as we know, the eastern side has is, is, is not been uh, damaged in, in that way. Uh, so there, there is land um, where the Chagosians could go back on Diego Garcia. There are also there are other islands in the archipelago, which are 150 miles away from Diego Garcia. And those, again, as far as we know, uh, have never seen any uh, U.S. military presence. Uh, and actually, it's quite clear because there have been some people who have been allowed to visit, although journalists, human rights observers, others have been prevented. Basically, you can't go to the island unless you get special permission, and, and that's almost never granted. Um, so there, there, there is land where the Chagosians can go back, um, and it's important to point out that the U.S. military is not packing up and getting ready to go because of uh, any fears about sea level rise. Uh, and more importantly, in fact, uh, the best scientific research I've seen uh, shows that the Chagos Archipelago is actually protected um, from sea level rise and is not in danger of the kind of sea level rise that is threatening the Maldives, for example, um, or Tuvalu Islands in the Pacific. Um, And it has to do with the the way the Indian Ocean and the Indian Ocean seafloor is structured, apparently protects the archipelago in the middle of of the ocean. Good news. Uh, there, There is hope. Uh, we're speaking with David Vine. Uh, his previous book is Island of Shame, uh, and his forthcoming book is Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Uh, most of these bases, David, are obviously not on islands that have been entirely taken over and the population evicted. Most of them are dropped down uh, in the middle of inhabited 
areas of other people's countries. Um, when I uh, lived in Italy, the U.S. military was a big presence, but it's become a much bigger presence. Um, to take Italy as one example, what is the state of, of U.S. bases there, and, and what do the Italian people make of it? Uh, a good question and a complicated question. The U.S. military presence in, in Europe has, has declined pretty dramatically since, since the end of the Cold War, uh, it's important to point out. But, but the United States still has hundreds of bases in Germany, Italy, Britain, Spain, and other parts of, of Europe. So while the, the, the overall presence has declined since the end of the Cold War, there, there's still a very significant U.S. presence with, with thousands, tens of thousands of, of U.S. troops. Um, in Italy and, and Germany in particular. And Italy is interesting because, relatively speaking, the, the U.S. base and troop presence has actually been pretty constant since the end of the, the Cold War. The, the declines have mostly been in, in Britain and, and Germany. So Italy has remained an, an important location for the U.S. military and for U.S. military planners. And as a result, we've seen very large base construction in, in several parts of Italy recently in the last decade or so. Uh, in Naples, which has long been an a important base for the U.S. Navy. In Aviano, which goes back a little bit farther to around the turn of the century. In Sicily, uh, which has become increasingly important in U.S. intervention in Africa. And in Vicenza, a small, medium-sized town outside of Venice. Yeah, I, I was an exchange student back in the late 80s near Vicenza, and the the base was relatively small, and the presence of the U.S. troops there relatively tolerated. Uh, but then there was this proposal for an enormous new base on the other side of town uh, that was extensively protested and resisted and, uh, and voted against. And uh, I went over there and took part in marches and demonstrations and so forth, and the base has just moved right ahead, uh, despite all public sentiment of people who live anywhere near it. Yeah, that's right. It, it was quite surprising. Italy has been a location where the, the U.S. military has seen relatively little protest, uh, unlike places like Okinawa, for example, or Vieques, where um, large uh, parts of the island were, were taken, and then People protested and eventually won most of the land back. Well, that's a complicated story. Uh, so in, in, in Vicenza, people were quite surprised when people started standing up and saying, you know, we've been living with this base and, and, and largely keeping quiet about some of the tensions that existed there and ways in which their lives were, were affected by the base. Uh, but we don't want a brand new base, and especially a base that, that was poised to play Essential roles in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and in Africa, which, which was also uh, foreseen. And the, the protest movement grew and grew and eventually incorporated people from throughout Italy and uh, from, from the states and, and countries around the world. Uh, unfortunately, um, although also a complicated story, the, the base was built. Um, the base uh, ran. Uh, over $600 million, uh, more than a half-billion-dollar base. And um, although the, it's important to point out that the people actually saved 
half of the land that was originally proposed as the, the site for the base. Uh, half of it is going to be what, what the city has called a, a peace park right adjacent to uh, the base. Um, so it's, it's a complicated story and, and, and actually quite inspiring what the people were able to accomplish even though the, the base was ultimately built. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading your new book on it. You, there also is a good protest movement down in Sicily of uh, of a base with uh, with communications used by the U.S. military for for drones and other things. Um, the uh, you mentioned the protests in in Japan, which have been uh, growing. But uh, I, I saw that your new book is also going to include Honduras. Um, what? What is the state of U.S. bases in Honduras? Yeah, in my, my, my book, Base Nation, does tell the story of, of some of these protest movements and focuses particular attention in, in Okinawa, in Vicenza, um, also a, a little-known base in Ansbach, Germany, among, among some others, like the ICAS. Um, but the, the status in, in Honduras, where there has also been a fair amount of protest, is that the United States has had a, quote-unquote, temporary military base there since 1982. Um, you know, it's fairly comical, but at this point that they still call it temporary. Uh, but that, of course, is to evade the Honduran Constitution's prohibition on the permanent station, stationing of, of foreign military troops on their soil. Uh, and the base was built amidst the, the bloody civil wars in Central America during the 1980s, and became sort of the, well, the entire country of Honduras was referred to as the, as the aircraft carrier for the U.S. military to, to assist uh, the repressive governments of El Salvador and Guatemala and the Nicaraguan Contras trying to overthrow uh, the government in Nicaragua. Um, and But it all was run from uh, the base that's called now Sotocano. Uh, and the, the base grew and grew throughout the 1980s. The presence declined after the end of the Civil Wars, the, around the time the end of the Cold War. Uh, but in recent years, basically the last 10 years or so, we've again seen the growth of the space in Honduras at Sotocano, uh, with much more permanent-looking infrastructure being built. And it's important to point out that the, there are many who suspect the base played some role in the 2009 uh, military coup that overthrew the democratically elected president at the time, Manuel Zelaya. Uh, the president, Manuel Zelaya, was flown out of the country to Costa Rica by the Honduran military uh, via the base at Sotocano. They landed there and then ferried him on to, to Costa Rica to exile. Uh, yeah, so this is a base that you know many have asked for quite a long time. Why why does the United States need a base in Honduras? Why uh, do we have a base so many years after the end of the the civil wars in in Central America? And I think the short answer is that there is no good reason to have a base there. Uh, the military likes having a base there and generally tries to uh, avoid having to give up any territory. It's, acquired by one means or another, uh, but any any legitimate uh, anti-drug operations, uh, anti-smuggling operations that, that the United States wish to, to carry out could be accomplished just as, 
just as well from bases in the United States. There's really no good reason other than militarizing Central America and Latin America more broadly to have a base in Honduras. You, you, suggest, you say there's no good reason to have a U.S. military base in Honduras, as if that were different from somewhere else. Where, where on the globe is there a good reason for there to be U.S. military bases in other people's countries? It's a very good question, very good question. Honduras, perhaps, is, is one of the more egregious cases. Uh, and in the end of, of Base Nation, I, I offer something of a, a proposal for reducing the presence of, of U.S. bases outside the United States. I think, and, and, and I, part of the proposal is, is some discussion of a, a, an international ban on, on foreign bases with some very limited exception uh, cases where democratically elected governments would invite uh, another country to to be, be on their soil. And, and you know, that, that is part of the, the justification for many of these bases. Uh, the U.S. military, the U.S. government would say, oh, this country wishes us to be here. You know, they, they've allowed us to be here. That, of course, overlooks what's often uh, quite a bit of, of local opposition. Um, but uh, basically, I, I think that, and, and I'm pleased to say there are people across the political spectrum who agree with me. And this has been an interesting shift from when I started this research 10, 15 years ago, that uh, anyone looking at bases tended to be pretty much on the left. But now you see people from the left to, to the right, libertarians, others, uh, who are questioning why the U.S. military has bases outside its territory. And they're questioning on a variety of grounds, the damage that, that these bases do to, to local populations, which is part of the story I tell in, in Base Nation. Uh, but they're also questioning the military efficacy and military justification for having bases outside the U.S. So part of the justification has long been that you can deploy forces faster when they're based in Germany or Japan or South Korea. But uh, given advances in, in air and, and sea lift, as it's called, technology, uh, the U.S. can deploy forces basically just as fast from the east or west coast of the United States as it could from, from Germany. Uh, research by the Bush administration, in fact, showed this. So there are people questioning why we have these bases. Uh, they're also questioning it on, on financial grounds. These bases cost tens of billions of dollars, by, by my estimate, somewhere between 70 and $100 billion at least a year that we're spending on to maintain military bases and forces overseas. Uh, bases overseas cost much more than they do when you base uh, U.S. military troops in the United States. And members of Congress, I'm happy to say, are, are recognizing this and asking, wait, why are these forces being based in, in Germany with their families and, and when, when their salaries and, and other spending is going into the German economy, not going into some, the economy of my district or my state? Uh, so there, there is uh, quite a lot of reason to be optimistic that, that this huge network of bases is actually shrinking and, and that we can shrink it further. 
Well, I'd love to see them shrink away to nothing uh, for reasons other than the desire to be selfish with our money or our ability to attack any spot on Earth without them. But uh, it, just to be uh, to give people some idea to the extent that it's knowable, uh, seventy to a hundred billion dollars. I think you said how many how many troops and and personnel is that at how many bases and in how many countries? Yeah, that's important to, to spell out. There, by my estimate, around 800 bases. Uh, the Pentagon puts together a list, and that's, eight, that's 800 bases outside the 50 states in Washington D.C. The Pentagon puts together a list every year of its base, what it calls base sites, and by its count, there are about 690 some bases. But that list excludes many well-known bases, like those in Kuwait, for example. Many others, all the all the bases in, that remain in Afghanistan, the bases that have returned to Iraq. So uh, I put together a pretty comprehensive exist, uh, comprehensive list uh, to the extent that we can we can know where all these bases are because some of them are of course are secretive, um, and it comes in around eighty, uh, eight hundred um, in somewhere around seventy countries around the world. And, and even in, in other countries where there's not a base, there's often a U.S. presence of one kind or another, trainers, exercises, and the like. Uh, and the, the total number of troops is in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, the biggest concentrations remain in, in Japan and Germany, South Korea, uh, with Italy following behind, um, each hosting tens of thousands of, of troops. Now, when I when I watch sports on television and they thank the U.S. troops for watching from 175 countries, where did they get the other 105 countries from? Yeah, that, that uh, is in the form of troops. Some, you know, they're Marines guarding U.S. embassies around the world, and others, uh, as I mentioned, in the form of, of trainers that, in many cases, are are there on a de facto permanent presence because they they cycle in and out basically constantly. So you have a, a team that's there for weeks at a time or, or perhaps as much as five or six months, and then they're simply replaced by another group of, of trainers. So the U.S. and local government can say there's no permanent U.S. presence, but, but on a de facto basis there is. So you have that, and then you have military exercises, um, sometimes uh, including you know 6,000 troops or more. In the Philippines, for example, there are been exercises in the last decade that have included at least 6,000 U.S. military personnel, more U.S. personnel than, than Filipino personnel. Uh, and this has been a way that, that the U.S. has actually returned to a country that, that evicted uh, some of the largest U.S. bases overseas in the early 1990s, the base of Clark and Subic Bay. Uh, the U.S. has slowly crept back by organizing these huge military exercises by uh, installing these training programs and also by building small bases that are formally called cooperative security locations, again, avoiding the use of the word base to frighten off anyone um, or to, to avoid the kind of protest we've seen uh, in many places. Um, more informally, these bases get called lily pad, uh, lily pad bases. And term actually entered the news in the past couple of weeks when we saw U.S. officials proposing to build new lily pad bases in Iraq as part of a strategy that to me makes very little sense. Uh, some seeming hope that 
you know, by building these lily pad bases, you could train the Iraqi army better than than they have, and and the training training of the the Iraqi army has clearly been a, a huge failure on the whole. So that um, is something of a picture of the the scene across the world. Well, the entire operation makes very little sense to me, and I'm looking forward to reading uh, some exposure of it in the forthcoming book, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World by David Vine. David, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.